Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. The Peace Corps has evolved over the years, faced controversy, and has made an international impact on poverty. Today, we talked to one of the architects of the Peace Corps, living here in Connecticut. After hearing President John F. Kennedy speak about the service program, Dan Sharp was inspired to make a difference. He became instrumental in establishing diplomatic relations between other countries and making the well-known volunteer program the behemoth that it is today. Training and volunteering for the Peace Corps or any service organization is a rigorous experience. And here to talk about his own experience is Dan Sharp himself. Thanks, Dan, for joining us today. Good morning, Kat. Happy to be with you and happy to talk about the Peace Corps. Happy to hear the enthusiasm. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Dan, you know, before we get into the nitty-gritty of how you got involved with the Peace Corps, what did your life look like before that? Well, it looked like I was going to stay in San Francisco as a lawyer for the rest of my life. The Peace Corps totally transformed my life in a wonderful way. And can you talk to us about the day that you saw President John F. Kennedy speak about the Peace Corps? What was it about that speech that resonated with you? Uh, I had been acting as chairman of a young adult study group at the World Affairs Council that had spent two years studying U.S. foreign policy for what we then called the Third World. And I, along with my friends there, were very upset with the way foreign policy was going. So when I sat in the Cow Palace and heard Senator Kennedy talk about an idea of the Peace Corps, it was like a lightning bolt hit me. It just sounded to me like the absolute most exciting idea that I had heard. And I determined to uh, try to help. So the next day, I went into my boss, the Attorney General of California, and asked for a leave of absence if Kennedy were elected so I could go back and help. And what did the Peace Corps look like to you when you first entered? I imagine Peace Corps in 1962 is very different from Peace Corps 2023. Well, first of all, there was no Peace Corps at that time. When I got to Washington, I uh, didn't know anyone at the Peace Corps. I found its office across from the White House. I went and knocked on the door, and there were about 30 other employees beginning to develop uh, legislation and ideas for what the Peace Corps would be. And so fortunately for me, Sergeant Shriver put me to work right away, uh, initially in helping to design an international Peace Corps and subsequently to help draft the legislation. And can you talk to us about what that work looked like drafting the legislation? You said you were, you know, thrusted into negotiating with the organization's first treaties. Well, the first idea, which is unfortunately forgotten, Kennedy and Shriver, uh, Shriver being Kennedy's brother-in-law, who was assigned to create the Peace Corps, had a wonderful idea of creating an international Peace Corps in which American volunteers would be part of international teams along with volunteers from other countries, 
And the idea was that they would work under the jurisdiction of the various specialized agencies of the United Nations. And so what, what Shriver asked me to do, and very nicely put me on the U.S. delegation to the U.N. reporting to Adelaide Stevenson, was to negotiate treaties with uh, five of the specialized agencies of the U.N. that would host the American volunteers. And so I think the Peace Corps has a reputation of tackling world poverty. How do you feel about that mission today? Has it changed much, or what more would you like to see done? Well, I think it's fair to say that the original purposes of the Peace Corps were not quite so ambitious as to end world poverty. Uh, There were three initial purposes, and the one that relates to world poverty was that we wanted a group of Americans with enough skills to make a contribution to economic development and to education. Um, and so the, the three purposes were to make a contribution, uh, to learn about other countries, and to bring back into the United States an understanding of what the world was like outside of our borders. And, you, you know, you talk about making a contribution and learning from other countries and perhaps bringing some of what you learn from other countries back here to the States. You know, why is it important that young people do do service? You know, why do you feel like having a year of service is so essential? Well, I think it, that it would be important, particularly now, even more than it was then. Our country is unfortunately divided. And I think if there was an experience of young Americans... Um, participating in teams of their fellow Americans from all over the country and from different economic and social and cultural and racial levels, that that would help to bring us back towards being a united country rather than uh, a a torn-apart country. But that was not part of the initial purpose of the Peace Corps, but it's one that we all realize that the best, the the major benefit of the Peace Corps to the United States was that... um, 250,000 or 240,000 Americans so far have served abroad and have come back uh, having been part of of teams of fellow Americans who were different from themselves and bringing back their experience of living in a different kind of world than the one that they grew up in. So I'm very excited about an idea that is not yet fully accepted, that a year of voluntary service would be good for the volunteer and it would be good for America. And it sounds like there's a lot of you know, lessons learned as the Peace Corps develops over the years. Do you think service is about character building or about a commitment to serve? Or is it perhaps a mix of both? Well, it certainly is both. <clears throat> um, I, I think our, our values get changed, I think, as we see the benefit of contributing to other people. Uh, and in the process, uh, it is character building. I will say that Uh, After I served overseas, I worked for a corporation, and I hired uh, more than a dozen former volunteers. Every one of them got promoted twice as fast as others who were hired at the same time. And I attribute to that to what they learned overseas in terms of how to function in a different uh, environment, how to be resilient, how to respond to unexpected developments. So it certainly is character-building as well as developing a much more coherent America. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about youth going into service and a lot of different kinds of people going into volunteer service to learn about different things. Can you talk about the importance of bringing people of different backgrounds together? You know, what kind of value do do we learn and have from that kind of experience? 
Well, I think most Americans <clears throat> grew up somewhat isolated, uh, kind of like in the silo of people like themselves. Uh, and we're not going to have a united country if that uh, trend continues. So uh, it's good for the individual uh, to learn much more about uh, fellow Americans, but it's indispensable for the country to try to come back together again. And we only have a couple of minutes left, but I do want to ask, you know, there's a lot of discussion right now about college, you know, the need for a college education, the price of college. How do you think something like the Peace Corps might help people prefer, prepare for college or maybe change their view of college? Uh, traditionally, a college degree was um, a, a very big plus for getting into the Peace Corps. But I think your perceptive question suggests that we're coming to understand that a college education is not necessarily the best path for everybody. I'm not sure the extent to which the Peace Corps is now opening up to people without a college degree. I hope it is, uh, <clears throat> because there are so many people whose life experience <clears throat> would be a valuable contribution without a college degree. And yes, your question is, would it help them decide? Absolutely. I think the Peace Corps experience for almost every former volunteer that I know, as it did for me, transformed my life. I lived a totally international life outside of San Francisco, had a wonderful series of careers, none of which would have been possible if I hadn't been had myself opened up to the international experience. So that's what I would hope for all Americans. The younger American is when they first get out of their own a special home environment, I think the easier it is for them to learn and to, for it to benefit and help them make life decisions. Well, I'm so glad to hear that you've had such a wonderful experience. And we have actually a little bit more time for one more question. I do want to note that actually anyone at any age can be a Peace Corps volunteer, even if you're retired. So, Dan, do you think anyone looking to do some volunteer work should consider getting involved with the Peace Corps? Well, if they're at a point where they can get away, we've had volunteers into their 70s, and uh, I'm not sure about the 80s. Uh, I'm now 91. I think I may be a little too old to go back in the Peace Corps. Um, but there is no age limit so far as I know, um, and I, I would encourage anyone thinking about it to ask the Peace Corps. It really is a wonderful opportunity uh, and one that would benefit the individual as well as the United States and the country where they serve. You've been listening to Dan Sharp. He's a Peace Corps founding member. Thank you so much for your time today, Dan. It's been a pleasure, Kat. Thank you for calling. Coming up next, we're going to be talking about the benefits of volunteers that they get when they join a service program and why a mentorship organization in Washington, D.C. thinks service should be mandatory. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. 
So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've been talking about the history of the Peace Corps and that it's celebrating its 62nd anniversary this year. I think at some point in our lives, especially as students, we've been encouraged to do some sort of volunteer experience. I've certainly done a fair share of hours for Key Club in high school, but oftentimes it's not the most financially practical thing to do. Here to talk about that practicality and the value of service work is Kari Brown. He's the president and CEO of Spark the Journey, which is a mentorship program that's based in D.C. Thank you so much, Kari, for joining us today. Thank you, Kat. And uh, it's great to be here. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And so, Kari, we've been talking a lot about how, you know, the Peace Corps got its origin story, how it started, and where we are today. And talking about how doing service can obviously make a big difference to the communities that volunteers serve. But can you talk about what are some of the benefits to volunteers themselves when they get themselves into these service programs? Well, we know that service makes us uh, healthier and happier. (laughs) Um, There are social gains, um, mental health uh, gains. When you give, you know, your brain releases dopamine and people get a sense of satisfaction. Um, You heard Dan talk about, you know, connection to new experiences and, and social groups. Um, learning new skills, creating friendships, you know, outside of your own sort of cultural area and stepping outside of your, of your comfort zone. So there's, there's a lot to be gained um, from, from volunteering and um, there's a lot of evidence around that. And Dan also mentioned that it sounds like there's more need for that kind of connection that you just mentioned, you know, friendship and socialization with each other. There's more need for that today versus maybe when he was involved getting the Peace Corps running. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I I wasn't around then, but I do want to also quickly note that if, you know, Dan and his uh, colleagues had not started or helped to start the Peace Corps, I wouldn't be here. My mother was a a VISTA volunteer, um, you know, which is sort of an offshoot, a domestic version of the Peace Corps. And uh, so I grew up hearing about volunteerism that really helped to shape, you know, my appreciation for it. And now, um, you know, leading an organization for the last 22 years, um, I've I've seen time and again how volunteerism uh, you know, can really help not just the, those who you're volunteering for, but but the volunteers themselves. And you've written about the benefits of having a, a mandatory service year. You know, why do you feel like having a year of service is so essential? And what will be sort of your ideal plans on making that happen? 
Yeah, um, you know, I I was exposed to well, my first job out of college was playing basketball in Finland, and Finland is a country that uh, has mandatory military service, and you know, while they haven't had a, an actual conflict since World War II, um, the military service was really a unifying aspect of uh, Finnish culture amongst the men who had served. Every adult man that I met while I was there, uh, you know, had all served in the military, and they talked about it as as really, you know, something that gave them great pride in in their country, despite the differences, you know, in their backgrounds. Um, and so I, you know, I think that is something that we are. You heard Dan talk about a little bit, you know, and how disconnected we are from one another today. It's just sorely, sorely needed. We're, we're, you know, this is a time of terrible isolation, um, despite the fact that, you know, the Internet gives us the tools to, you know, be sort of global in any moment. It also really, you know, isolates us. When you look at your feed, it's the same things that are <laughs> popping up um, and, and, you know, drawing you further away often. Um, and I think, you know, volunteerism is an opportunity um, to open us back up. Well, maybe after this conversation today, we will see more volunteer service uh, related information popping up on our feeds, right? Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about what does service look like in Finland, you know, whether it's military service or anything within that? Just give us an idea of what that looks like. Well, I was really only exposed to the military service aspect. You know, sure. Finland uh, it has a lot of really strong social services. And so they don't have the same, they don't have poverty in the way that we do here in the U.S. And so there isn't a need to volunteer and do things that, say, the government would would take care of. Um, but, but, but the military service, as I mentioned before, um, you know, is, is something that brings people together and, um, you know, even though it was really not a, necessarily about fighting, um, you know, it it did imbue a sense of pride in in the people in their country. And I posed this question to Dan earlier as well, but I also would love to hear what you have to say about what you know you choosing in going into volunteer service. Do you think it's about character building or about a commitment to serve? You know, working towards unity or perhaps a mix of both. Well, I think, you know, the people who I talk to, you know, in in my years of leading a volunteer program, you know, they go into it because they want to give back. They want to help their community. And I can't tell you how many times I've talked to volunteers over the years, you know, dozens have come up to me afterwards and saying, I went into this because I wanted to give. And I didn't know that I would receive in the way that I have. And then they go on to talk about, you know, the new experiences that they never would have had, the you know, sort of appreciation for different cultures that they, you know, hadn't been exposed to, the growth, you know, the skills that they've developed and the relationships that, that you know, these cross-cultural often relationships that are, are really, really enriching for them. And, you know, these volunteers end up thanking me for, you know, the experience um, that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So, you know, I, 
I think that, again, this is something that, you know, it's a particular moment where our country um, is really divided and we need more ways to bring us together in, in some types of unifying experiences. So I would love to get into what your organization is about in a little bit, but I do want to ask you too, because we mentioned that you've written about why this should be mandatory. So why do you think this needs to be mandatory? And have you gotten any responses from your colleagues or peers about what they think, um, whether or not it should be mandatory? You know, I've gotten some great responses. I've had some People say, you know, it, it, this, how could this happen in this political environment? And I, you know, grant that uh, that we would need a a really charismatic leader, uh, you know, like a Kennedy or an Obama, to um, you know really kick this idea off um, and and rally people around it. But you know, I this is a time when. <laughs> We, young people are finishing high school and um, are having difficulty with what their next steps are. So the program that I lead, Spark the Journey in Washington, D.C., we help young people prepare for economic mobility through college and career preparation. And we're seeing in our high school seniors that this is a time when, you know, the decisions that they have to make are, look a little bit different right now. We're seeing a lot of change in higher education. Um, you know, upper income kids call uh, the, uh, taking a year off a gap year. And, you know, that, that's something that gets a lot of discussion. Uh, a, a mandatory service program could serve as a bridge to what would come next for young people. Um, it could help them get experiences that would that they could build on either, you know, in um, moving to higher education or moving right into the workforce. You know, we also, this is a time when, you know, we have tremendous infrastructure needs in our country. Uh, we, you know, volunteers could be mobilized to tackle some of those, some of those projects, you know, like a, a Habitat for Humanity um, on steroids, you know, type of thing. And again, in doing those things, you know, the volunteers would gain some some skills that could be useful to them later on. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the sort of the different challenges that students have now, maybe from high school going to college. I mean, Dan elaborated on that a little bit earlier as well. So I want to kind of break that down a little bit more, especially since, you know, you're on the ground, you're seeing these students. Can you talk about some of the, the new challenges, I guess, you know, that they're facing going into college or making that, as you say, a, a sort of a life choice on what they want to do for the rest of their lives? You know, what are you seeing? or hearing. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it is a challenging time coming out of the pandemic. Um, uh, but some of these trends, you know, predate the pandemic. So college affordability um, has been an issue. You know, we've seen the costs of college increasing well above the rate of inflation for, you know, more than 20 years. And, and the value of, uh, of, of, of grants and 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 um, scholarships has gone down, um, and so we see a you know the price tag college is just becoming un, um, unaffordable for way too many people, um, and, and the economic pressures since the pandemic have exacerbated that. So we're seeing young people who are leaving high school and saying, "I have to 
earn money. I have to help my family. Um, and you know, they, they need to do something right away that is, um, going to help them today, putting, putting food on the table. Uh, so a, a, a program that could give them a stipend, um, that could help them, you know, defray, um, college loans, or that could get them some type of training, um, you know, would be a tremendous benefit to young people uh, today. And can't blame them for that, really, wanting to put food on the table, right? And definitely we'll want to Absolutely. get back to the, the financial incentives in a little bit. But I do want to ask, you know, on the flip side, we also have students who are afraid to defray college. And I'm wondering if this is something that maybe this is a trend that I saw um, graduating in 2008 with the recession. A lot of students end up going from undergrad to postgrad work. Um, so that sort of became the trend versus going out and, you know, getting work experience. First and whatnot. So, can you talk about students being afraid of, you know, pushing college off a year that they think it's not the right thing to do, or it may push back, you know, their career choice? Like, what are you hearing, or what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I do remember that from um, the generation that was coming up during the Great Recession, and I would say that it's a little bit different today. You know, we hear so much about. Um, you know, folks your age who now are saddled with, you know, tens of thousands and sometimes more than a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt, and you know that it, you know we have a case that's going before the court that you know it looks like you know it's unlikely that that student loan debt is going to be forgiven, and young people are hearing that today, and the conversation around the the value of college. Um, is changing, particularly, I think, for you know, students who you know, don't have the financial resources to be able to um, you know, pay college tuition. And just wanted to add a quick reminder for our listeners that if you have had any service experience that you'd like to share, please join the conversation at 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, Kari, you know, you mentioned the financial sort of um, situation with students not being able to, you know, literally put food on the table if they go into service programs. So is that something that programs like the Peace Corps or other other related service programs should work on? Are there things that are ongoing right now? You know, what changes are you seeing and what changes still needs to happen from your perspective? You know, there are some terrific programs right now that that enable students to do a year of service and connect them with organizations that give them stipends. So AmeriCorps, which is, you know, sort of an offshoot of, um, you know, the initial Peace Corps initiative um, in, a, in a domestic version. Uh, you know, gives, does provide some financial benefits and they partner with organizations. There's a terrific organization called Service Year that has been, you know, promoting this year of service and connecting with nonprofits. My organization has hired, you know, some AmeriCorps volunteers in the past. And it is a way for, you know, a, a young person to do that sort of, you know, what some might call gap year. Um, be in a new city, in a new environment, um, gain some skills, gain some experiences, and then move on to their next thing, whether it's full-time employment or, or higher education. They're not going to get rich through these programs, um, but it is a way you know, to earn some money in the short term.
Right. And and I think like like both you and Dan had mentioned already on the com- during the conversation is there is this desire and need to, to sort of fill your resume with work experience, you know, fill your resume with with a college degree. And so, you know, times have changed. I think priorities have shifted. Um, but, you know, when when we look at resumes, most employers still go straight into looking at the employee history. So can you talk uh, talk about the value of having volunteer work as a part of our work experience? Because just because it's, you know, quote, quote, volunteer, it doesn't mean it's not work, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a great way, you know, if you, when you're interviewing, um, you know, to be able to talk about, you know, your volunteer service. And as an employer, you know, you, you see that sort of volunteer often service at the bottom of the resume. And it tells you something about the person, right? You, it tells you what, what is really of value to them. What are they passionate about? What are the experiences that they've had? And, and then in an interview, it can give them an opportunity to, to really highlight things that may not have jumped off of the page, you know, in their resume um, and get, get some type of connection with the person that, that they're interviewing. So, you know, I always love to, you know, find out a little bit more about people. You never really know in an interview what you're going to get. And then, and when someone is really, you know, sharing those types of experiences, it, 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 it's of great benefit to them, I think, and to the employer, you know, to learn a little bit more about them. Well, I know we've been focusing the conversation a lot about the financial incentives and and being able to give a a good stipend for those who would like to serve. And I think a lot of people would like to serve if they're able to get that. And, um, you know, on that note, what are other challenges you're seeing to attract people to do service? You know, is there a way to incentivize more people to to go for it? You know, we've been able to grow our program and and not have a you know at any time a shortage of volunteers but um, we are noticing that in the past year and a half it's becoming a little bit harder and our colleagues um, in volunteer programs are are saying the same thing around the country and I don't know that you know that there's a sort of universal you know answer to why that is but you know, my guess is that coming out of the pandemic that, um, you know, we, people are challenged in a number of ways. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of mental health challenges right now in in communities and uh, maybe some more financial challenges. I don't know all of the reasons, but it is becoming a bit more difficult. Um, it would be great if if we had national leaders who were really inspiring us to do this once again. I think, you know, at different times um, in our history, we've had some unifying messaging uh, from, you know, whether it's, <laughs> I remember, you know, shortly after 9-11, there was a moment of great unity in in the country. It didn't last very long, <laughs> but uh, uh, there was a, a, a moment of, of, you know, sort of coming together for purpose and country uh, there isn't very much of that today. Um, there's a lot of division from our national leaders, and I think we could really use a jolt of <laughs> some more in- enthusiasm for connecting with one another. 
Right. I would be into a little jolt that's beyond caffeine right now. <laughs> well, you know, you know, Dan spoke about division and unity, and you spoke about unifying just now, as well as earlier about unity and service being a good way, a good way to unify people. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Because we are, you're right, we are living in a very divided and often lonely times. Is service a good way to bring to bring about people together um, without realizing that that's what they're doing. Yeah, certainly, I've seen that in in my career in you know, more than 20 years leading a volunteer program at Spark the Journey. Um, you know, I, Washington D.C. is a uh, though diverse. We are economically and um, geographically segregated. Um, and that breaks along racial lines. And, and our program, though many of our mentors are the same race as their mentees, we do a lot of cross-cultural matches. And in those cases, you know, we see from the volunteers, um, you know, they speak of great learning that, that, that they've experienced. We, we hear them talk about, uh, you know, the benefits of getting to know people outside of their circles, developing new friendships, learning more about the city, you know, for our people who are new to Washington, D.C., you know, they often want to get involved in a um, service you know, initiative because it grounds them in their new community. And, you know, I just, again, think that we need more of that, um, more encouragement from our leaders to engage in this type of work. Uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, you know, there are still many, many people in our communities who are, are struggling. Um, and this is a time when we could use more resources and volunteers, you know, are a great way to do that. Well, we can definitely use more resources, as we always say. And, you know, you talked about your organization a little bit, and you you mentioned the mentorship um, just now. But I want to dig in a little bit more, especially because you talk with younger people as well. You know, what has their experiences like? You know, what are their philosophies? And, and what does the service look like with your organization? You know, young people also have to do service um, in Washington, D.C., uh, in order to graduate from high school, you have to complete 100 hours of service. And so we, you know, sometimes do service projects. We bring our volunteers and our students together, and they go out and do projects in the communities um, together. I've led many, many of these over the years. Um, a lot of them, uh, you know, some great ones are uh, environmental service projects. So cleaning up a, a park or uh, planting trees, um, you know, doing work that is uh, uh, physical um, at, at times. And, you know, you're side shoulder to shoulder with someone that you never met. And, um, you know, you've got your hands in the dirt or you're, you're uh, uh, you know, your other projects that we do, you know, are around food insecurity. You're chopping vegetables together or you're loading up bags. Uh, you know, these are ways that our young people, it gives them some agency to be able to be involved in their own communities and, and a way to give back um, as well. And it helps them you know, better appreciate, um, I've seen the service that other volunteers are providing for them. And, and it gives them that sort of perspective. What, what I love to see is then years later, 
our former mentees wanting to become mentors. And that's something that's happened dozens and dozens of times um, throughout my career. And it's, that's always the most gratifying thing for me. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned all of the things that you mentioned just now, really, because it kind of took me back to my own experience as a high school kid working on these projects. And you're totally right. My experience was I graduated in a class of like 700 students, so I didn't know Mm -hmm. the person sitting next to me. So it was a really fun experience doing those projects with people that I had no idea we were in the same class. And um, and like you said, you know, getting your hands dirty and and planting trees. I do want to say, you know, we have about about couple of minutes left, but I want to ask, you know, with your experience so far, what are you hearing from students? You know, are they enjoying it? Do they want to do more? Do they want to go beyond, you know, their time in the organization? You know, what are you hearing? Well, uh, you know, and I <laughs> have a, a student at home, too, who, you know, needs to complete her, <laughs> all of her hours as well. And, you know, students always need encouragement right to get out there and do it but then once they find that once they're out there um you know that it that it does um it is engaging and and that if you know particularly if it's the right project um you know it it does lift you up a little bit um you feel good when you come out of um having done something for other people um, regardless of whether, you know, you're a student or, you know, whether you're Dan and you're 91. Uh, you know, the, the, we know that giving to others, um, you know, also brings something to the giver, right? And and so th- that is true for young people. I just think that young people need a bit more of a push sometimes, um, you know, to get going on it. We'll consider this to be a push that we're doing on air. And, and and just real quickly, because as we're having this conversation, I think the idea of this white savior criticism also comes up. Do you mind responding to that? You know, what are your thoughts about this idea of a white savior complex? Well, savior, you know, um, I, I think people shouldn't see themselves as, as saviors, but um i think that white people should be contributing and should feel um yeah uh compelled to contribute particularly you know um the more privilege you have um the more you should be giving i think um and you shouldn't approach that as that you're saving somebody you should be approaching it as this is a way in which i can help this is something that i should be doing to whom much is given much is expected, right? Absolutely. And I just wanted to remind people that you have been listening to Kari Brown. He's the president and CEO of Spark the Journey, a mentorship program that's based in D.C. And he'll stay with us after the break. And just a moment, a Peace Corps veteran will be joining us to talk about her experience. And another reminder that you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live.
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. We're back to talk more about the Peace Corps. Here with us is Tasha Prados. She's volunteered with the Peace Corps from 2011 to 2013, and she's now a marketing strategist, a digital nomad creator, and a traveling writer. Thank you so much for joining us today, Tasha. Hi, how are you? I'm good. And just a reminder, too, that Kari Brown, president and CEO of Spark to Journey, is also still with us. And you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Tasha, can you tell us about your experience with the Peace Corps? What attracted you first to the Corps in the first place? Sure. Um, I was in college, and, um, you know, I'm multicultural. I think that recognizing the privilege that I had being born in the United States, I really felt a big responsibility to give back. And I wanted to spend my career alleviating poverty and inequality and uh, helping to make up for the U.S. legacy of colonialism and imperialism around the world. So it sounds like that's quite a few things on your list of what you <laughs> wanted to do. Can you tell us about that experience? Now, were, were they things that you're able to do, um, not quite able to do, want to do further? You know, what was that experience like? You know, it's it's interesting, this conversation. I had a, personally, I had a really great experience in the Peace Corps. Um, as Dan and Kari said, you know, I feel like I received a lot more than I gave. Um, I learned a ton, and I think it's great training for individuals who are interested in working in international development. But it also really disillusioned me with international development, and I no longer work in that field. <laughs> Well, and so on that note, I've had conversations with different people throughout my life about volunteer service. And someone put it very pointedly to me a couple years ago that recognizing that there is this need absolutely to serve internationally, but there's also a very dire need to serve locally as well. You know, do you have thoughts on that? And what are your philosophies in terms of local, you know, national versus international? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. I think a key thing is that people, you know, we, you mentioned earlier the white savior industrial complex, right? And people feel, people wanna help. You know, they often have good intentions, um, but the road to help can be paved with good intentions. And the important thing is that whoever is being quote unquote helped, they really need to be at the center of the decision-making process. Um, because oftentimes people coming in from the outside they simply don't have enough knowledge or expertise or may, might not even be qualified to do what they're doing. And they might even be causing unintentional harm. They might have the best of intentions, but it might turn out that them, you know, volunteering to teach English takes away jobs from a local person who would otherwise have that job. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I know you write quite a bit about the white savior industrial complex in your own writing. Can you Help us define what that is. And I know we've touched on it a little bit, but explain further of what that means. Well, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on it. Teju Cole coined the term in 2012 in the Atlantic. Um, and it's basically the idea that white people or people with privilege are here to save, help, teach, and protect people of color and those from lower and middle income countries. And so I, I believe you've also written about how it's not about justice. It's also about having a big emotional experience that validates privilege. Can you help us break that down? I didn't write that, no. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think, as we all know, we go into volunteering because we want to help for altruistic reasons, but it also makes us feel really good about ourselves. 
And sometimes that that feeling can not align with the reality of how that can impact the local community. And you might not even realize it. And that impact might not even be felt until years later. Mm. Well, I want to ask Carly, too, about that same question. You know, it is about having a big emotional experience that validates privilege and the fact that you are much more involved on the local scale. You know, what are your thoughts about that? You know, I think Tasha said something really important about having the people who are helped being at the center of the decision making process. And so engaging you know, the community and understanding what it is that they want and making sure that you have um, you know, people who are making decisions who are reflective of that community. And Tasha, you know, we spent a lot of time this hour talking about the benefits of doing volunteer service. And, you know, you were attracted to the Peace Corps with your own reasons earlier. You know, what do you think the Peace Corps can do uh, to attract more people or to incentivize more people to join the service? Well, as a branding and marketing strategy consultant, um, I think there's a lot of things that Peace Corps can and should do to reform if they're going to continue to stay relevant and continue to recruit people in today's extremely competitive job environment. You know, when the Peace Corps was started in the 1960s and all the great work that Dan did, there were very few opportunities to go abroad in this kind of way and to still feel safe and really kind of have the backing of the U.S. government behind you in a way. Nowadays, Gen Z has almost unlimited opportunities. Um, and the fact of the matter is that the Peace Corps isn't very competitive. Um, so, you know, we talk a lot about volunteering and the benefits of volunteering, but to be able to volunteer is really a privilege. You have to be coming from a place of privilege. It wasn't even until very recently that White House interns and Hill interns were paid. And if you can accept an unpaid position, only a certain type of person is going to be able to do that. So in order to become more competitive, Peace Corps really needs to do a lot to support their volunteers more and not just in terms of, um, you know, for example, in terms of mental health, in terms of addressing diversity issues. And unfortunately, some of these issues are very hard, I think, for Peace Corps to reform because of the way that it's structured. And might, I'm not an expert, but might take an act of Congress. But I think there's a lot that they can do without that. And we're going to take a quick call from Anne Quinlan from Winstead, who would like to share her experience. Anne, are you on the line? I am. Um, I'm from a different generation, and I'm sure the Peace Corps volunteers today have a whole different experience. But... I went to Ecuador in 1982 and spent uh, two and a half years in healthcare there. I'm a registered nurse. When I returned, I worked in the Hispanic unit of the visiting nurses in Hartford and then moved back out to Winstead, where we have had a blossoming Hispanic population. Um, I'm at a point where I'm ready to retire, but I just... I can't let go of my Spanish-speaking patients. <laughs> um, they are near and dear to my heart, and I feel like they're not going to be listened to uh, when they get a young, fast English-speaking nurse. I want to thank but, Aunt. So my Peace Corps volunteer, my my time in Peace Corps, literally changed my life. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for calling in and sharing that experience. Tasha, can you respond to what Anne has to say, you know, especially since you've had experience with the Peace Corps as well? 
Well, it sounds like Anne had a really wonderful experience in the Peace Corps and cares a lot about her patients. I'm really happy that um, you're able to share with us, Anne. Thank you so much. And we only have about two minutes left, Tasha, but I do want to ask, you know, we've been talking about the importance of volunteer service and your really good experience with the Peace Corps, but are there improvements that you would like to see regarding how the Peace Corps train and support their volunteers? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of young folks and folks in the younger generations really want to see Peace Corps reform, uh, especially after the racial justice movements and protests in recent years. Um, I think there's a lot the Peace Corps can and should do. I think one of those things is volunteers live in a very gray space. They're not employees, and yet Peace Corps expects to tell them what to do 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they should have the rights that employees have, including legal protections. Um, unfortunately, what implicit bias is everywhere, right? Um, so when we go abroad to serve, we bring those biases with us. So Peace Corps needs to do more to address racism within the Peace Corps and not just within the volunteers, but within the staff and even within locals, which is really hard because every country has a different cultural context. Um, I'd love to see them do more to address the race and power dynamics inherent in international development um, and really doing more to ensure that host country nationals and governments have the space to lead and own anything implemented by outsiders. Um, ensuring that volunteers are qualified for the positions that they're filling and they're not taking jobs away from locals um, and not causing unintentional harm. And then working to reduce barriers to entry and access to serving in and staying in the Peace Corps and working for the agency um, and really making sure that all staff and volunteers are adequately supported. Well, thank you so much for that, Tasha. You've been listening to Tasha Prados. She's been sharing her experience volunteering with the Peace Corps from 2011 to 2013. Thank you so much for your time today, Tasha. Thank you. You've also been hearing from Kari Brown. He's the president and CEO of Spark the Journey, a mentorship program that's based in D.C. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Kat. It was great to be with you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.